Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we'll be looking at the Kerrang! issue of 623, November 16th, 1996, £1.50 pence Planet Rock every Wednesday. The cover stars for this week are Terrorvision and Def Leppard. Northern Uproar, Def Leppard and Terrorvision, On the Road and On the Raz. News, Offspring LP, Screaming Trees and Skunk Life, Sepultura Shock, We Nearly Split. Free tool tape for every reader. Save 10 quid on top LPs. Presidents, Peachless in Seattle, Type of Negative, Love Sandwich, plus four posters, Garbage, Pearl Jam, Honeycrack and Fear Factory. There is an absolute ton to get through this week. Uh, really, yeah, really good issue coming up. Some great album reviews. Some, uh, actually, two two albums I absolutely love uh, are reviewed this week, which is uh, you know, nice for me. <laughs> going back and reading those. Uh, the singles are all great. Again, I don't know what's going on with the singles in 1996. They're just really brilliant. Uh, the live reviews are great. Yeah, there's a... Uh, uh, a review of Stereophonics and the Camden Monarch, which is just yeah ridiculous when you think about how big they are now. Anyway, uh, we'll get to that when we get to that. If you'd like to get in contact with us here at Karangback Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram, Karangback Issues, Twitter KarangPod, and email issues at gmail.com. And if you'd like to leave a review for this podcast, then please do so at Apple Music or Spotify. I'd really appreciate it. Anyway, this week, this issue was created with the following stimulants. Breakfast with Mark Lanigan, Shirley Manson, Breast Faux Pas, copyright the Kerrang Blokes Contingent, a lovely signed manhole poster, scorching live shows from Screaming Trees, Fireside and New Bomb Turks, crunching up cornflakes, pocket-sized models of Beavis, yet another Kerrang Tour kicks off, the insane new tool video, a deluge of entries to our Marilyn Manson video comp, Redskins clothing, porn, porn, and more porn. Manix coffee mugs, wanted on TV. New LPs from Orange Nine Millimeter, Bush and Sublime. Fancy Bob's lovely new red shirt. Chelsea girl, come on down. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We start this week where we always begin news. And the first news piece this week is a premonition of what's to come in 1996. Sepultura have sensationally revealed to Kerrang that they came close to splitting up during the summer. Talking exclusively to Kerrang, frontman Max Cavalera spoke candidly about the internal problems the Brazilian metal stars have had to overcome during the past few months. Says Max, a lot of the shit we went through was because of the general commotion that came when Dana died just before we were due to play at Donington in August. The band wanted to go out on the road immediately after Dana's funeral which put me in a difficult spot. I told him that I couldn't go out on tour right then because I needed to straighten my head out and let my wife straighten hers out. I needed at least two weeks to deal with the pain. I said the best thing for everybody would be if we took a break, then we get together and talk things over. Although it was never actually said in so many words, Max did reveal that at this point, the band's future was in jeopardy, but a crisis was averted. The first show after we got back together was one of the best we've ever fucking done. It felt great. What people have to understand is that we've grown up. We're not a gang like we used to be. We all spend time apart with our families and kids. When people see this, 
they kind of get a weird vibe, but that's just the way it is. People might see me traveling in a separate bus from the rest of the band and wonder if there's a problem between us. But that's just because I might want to have my family with me on the road and it's easier for us to all be in a different bus. That's all. You've got to be crazy to leave Sepultura right now. I really believe we're close to being everything we want to be. The Seps come here next month to play five dates on a Kerrang! sponsored tour. Newport Centre December 11th, Manchester Apollo 12th, Glasgow Barrowlands 13th, Wolverhampton Civic Hall 15th and London Brixton Academy on the 16th. Offspring, the superstar California punks will finally release a new album in February and Kerrang! can exclusively reveal that the record will have the rather odd title of Ixne on the Hombre which is the Mexican term for Kill the Man. The follow-up to their mega-selling 1994 album Smash, which has shifted 7 million copies in the States alone. The record was produced by Dave Jordan and is set to feature 15 tracks. These are Disclaimer, a spoken word intro piece from punk legend Jello Biafra, The Meaning of Life, Motor, Me and My Old Lady, Call to Hate, Leave It Behind, Gone Away, I Choose, Intermission, All I Want, Way Down the Line, Cocktail, Don't Pick It Up, Amazed and Change the World. Ixnay, the band's final album for Epitaph Records, will be issued in the UK and Europe on February the 3rd. In the States, it will be their first release on Columbia. Marilyn Manson, the most controversial and talked about rock band of the decade, are continuing to generate unprecedented interest in their upcoming Kerrang!-sponsored UK tour. Demand for tickets has been so great that promoters have now moved their show in Glasgow on December the 14th from the Cat House to the Garage which is considerably larger. Tickets bought for the original venue will still be valid. The news comes just a week after the Manson's London Day uh, was moved from the Electric Ballroom in Camden to the Charing Cross Road Astoria, and their show in Manchester was upgraded from the Hop and Grape to the University MDH. Support on all these dates comes from Femme Punk Mob Fluffy. And if you can't wait until mid-December to see the Mansons in all their glory, Tune in to MTV's Headbangers Ball on November 21st when a Marilyn Manson tour special is aired. It includes interviews with the band and a sneak preview of their amazing live show. The programme goes out at 11pm. Deftones, the incendiary California noise crew, have just embarked on their biggest ever US tour, just days after recording a bizarre cover version of Depeche Mode track The Sweetest Perfection for a US tribute compilation LP. Speaking exclusively to Kerrang, Deftones vocalist Chino Marino commented, We wanted to cover a Duran Duran track, but Korn got there first. Jonathan took my song. This new romantic compilation LP is expected to be released stateside early next year. It isn't the first time the Deftones and Korn have been connected. The two bands toured together two years ago and Chino makes a guest vocal appearance on Wicked, a track from the new Korn LP Life is PG. I'm really good friends with those guys, comments Chino. Jonathan and I are both Duran uh, Duran fans. They had Wicked in their set when we toured together and I started getting up on stage with them to sing it. So when they went to record their album, they called me. I had a great couple of hours in the vocal booth with a crowd of friends and laid it down pretty much live. The two-week US tour is one of the most hotly anticipated tracks of the year as the Deftones are supported by Orange 9mm and Downset. We're really excited, Grinch Chino. We've spent the past year and a half on tour. In fact, we just came off the... Kiss tour here, and before that we were out with 311, then Pantera and White Zombie, and on the Walk tour. Playing with Kiss was weird. We never actually got to talk to them though, they seemed pretty cool people. After the US dates, the Deftones begin writing for their next album, the follow-up to 1995's acclaimed Adrenaline. 
However, Chino promises that the band are set to make their UK live debut during the first half of 1997. We will make it over. Guns N' Roses tapes dating back to pre-Appetite for Destruction days have surfaced in a Scottish garage. The ultra-rare tapes turned up at the home of guitarist Manny Charlton, one-time member of veteran Scott Rockers Nazareth. Charlton worked with the band on early versions of Welcome to the Jungle and November Rain. Says Charlton, the tapes are in my garage. I worked with the band on the pre-production for about a dozen songs. These were early versions of songs, some of which ended up on Appetite for Destruction and Use Your Illusion. If any of the guys have lost their tapes, then they're welcome to get in touch with me and I'll run them off a copy. Meantime, Guns N' Roses have refused to make any further statement on their future plans, following the official confirmation that Slash has finally left the band. However, according to official sources, vocalist Axl Rose has every intention of carrying on with the band alongside bassist Duff McKagan and drummer Matt Sorum. US Mail. We start this week with Don Kay in New York. Marilyn Manson came to town last week for a sold out pack to the rafters show at Roseland that was the hottest ticket in town and inevitably the hardest to get hold of. Advance word from those who previously seen the show warned of an entertaining yet deeply disturbing spectacle with eerie fascist overtones stemming from the storyline of the Antichrist Superstar album. Oi Don, what is the storyline? We can't work it out over here, editor. But I'm glad to report that the show was just a huge horror carnival. I strongly suggest you see the Mansons when they play in the UK next month on a tour co-promoted by Kerrang. Numerous celebs could be spotted in the Roseland's cramped VIP area, including Iggy Pop, Red Hot Chili Peppers guitarist Dave Navarro, ex-Blondie singer Deborah Harry and industrial guru Jim Fetus Furwell. And white zombie Shauna Uzel was also scurrying around. Rumour has it that she's going out with one of the Manson troops, but I can neither confirm nor deny this tittle-tattle. Type of negative also came to town last week to play Nassau Coliseum, an arena many doubting the homeboys can actually fill. Well, it was true that the upper sections of the venue were closed off, but Typo still packed in around 5,000 fans, which is very respectable. The band are coming over to England for a one-off day at London's Astoria on December 21st, another special Kerrang night. And whilst I don't want to give too much away about what you'll be seeing, the band have added a medley of 60s rock classics like My Fire and In the Gala de Vida to their set, the latter once covered by Slayer, and it literally snows on stage during Too Late Frozen. There's life in those old bones yet. Van Halen's Best of Volume 1 compilation album crashed into the US charts last week at number one selling more than a quarter of a million copies in its first seven days on sale. Best of Volume 1 is the first compilation album in more than 10 years to enter the charts over here in the top spot, which proves that the fans don't give a damn about the recent bickering between the band and former singer Dave Lee Roth. Next up we join Lisa Johnson in LA. Are you ready for John Bon Jedi? Let me explain. In 1980, a certain 18-year-old named John Bon Jovi sang R2-D2 We Wish You a Merry Christmas for the novelty album Star Wars' is Christmas, co-produced by John's second cousin Tony Bon Jovi, who thought it might be a great vehicle to launch his, John's career. Now, Rhino Records are releasing this oddball compilation in the States for the festive season. Collectors of strange novelty records will love the record Star Wars Christmas as the nine-song disc addresses hard-to-answer questions like 
what can you get a Wookiee for Christmas when he already owns a cone? Wonder what JBJ thinks of it all. Paradise Lost may be one of Britain's best loved metal giants as well as a very ancient poem by John Milton, but now Paradise Lost is the title of an upcoming documentary with a number of other metal connections. According to US magazine Entertainment Weekly, the film takes a deeply unsettling look at the horrific 1993 murders of three young boys in Arkansas, and the main murder suspects were three heavy metal loving teenagers. Although they were never convicted of the crime, if you want more info on this macabre film due to opening the state shortly, then check out the following internet site www.gothamcity.com forward slash paradise lost. And lastly this week we join Kevin Roberts in Seattle. We might look like some other Seattle band but we're the Wallabies and we're from Australia quick Chris Ballew from the Presidents of the USA when the trio performed a hush hush show in their hometown at Moe's Club on Halloween. During their 45 minute bottom of the bill set the wacky band alternated between songs from new album 2 and requests from the audience. It's so good to be playing in a small club again Ballew told the crowd, it's nice to be able to reach out and touch people. Part of the group set was filmed for inclusion in the Seattle comedy TV show Almost Live. This show also recently featured the presidents in a comedy sketch called The Lame List, a long running feature which has various well known people shouting lame to assorted news headlines. Honestly, it's funny when you see it for yourself, really. Incidentally, the presidents chose to call themselves the Wallabies because Dave Dederer was strangely wearing an Australian rugby union shirt on stage. An hour or so after the president's secret set, drummer Jason Finn was back on stage with local act 80 Proof, an 80s tribute novelty band who also feature ex-mother love band guitarist Bruce Fairweather, plus Ben London from Alcohol Funny Car and Andrew Mackay from Uncle Joe's Big Old Driver. In past performances, this tribute band have covered mostly metal stuff, but for Halloween they aptly did some goth tunes, including songs from The Cult, The Psychedelic Furs and The Cure. Talk about turning the tables. Whilst Courtney Love is soon to be seen playing the wife of a porn baron in The People vs Larry Flint, one-time porn star Tracy Lords is set to appear as a rock star in new movie Full Blast and 60 Cycle Hump. The film is being shot around the St Andrews Hall in Detroit, which has connections with Blind Melon. The soundtrack for this movie will include at least one song from Detroit's own Sponge. Do you know where you are? All I know is when I was here and I was 17, I was in the middle of the fucking jungle, baby! Out, Kerrang's roving eye. This week, Lisa Johnson sees the Manic's first LA gig for four years. The Manic Street Preachers might be one of the hottest bands in the UK right now, but you'd never know it judging from their latest visit to Hollywood, California, for a headlining gig at the infamous Troubadour Club. The trio are still fairly anonymous in North America, although they're avidly followed by Anglophile music lovers who seek out anything the British music press deems worthy of space. That buzz has helped them sell a paltry 3,400 copies of their latest album, Everything Must Go in the US. Their debut Generation Terrorists sold nearly three times that figure in 92. No wonder the Manics allegedly don't particularly care for America. The Troubadour's walls gleam with platinum records and posters which remind us of the glory days of LA rock where real men wore lipstick and hairspray. Images of long forgotten cock rock icons like Poison, Warrant and Great White loom overhead. At least Manix bassist Nicky Wyatt emerged on stage wearing blue eyeliner. The band had just barely sold out the 500 capacity venue, even so, the Troubadour didn't feel anywhere near as crammed as it did for recent shows by US punks to Voodoo Glow Skulls and indie rockers Pavement. 
but everyone there was a genuine, bona fide Mannix fanatic, and many of us had attended their first LA show at the Whiskey four years ago, when Richie James was still with them, and they wore leather trousers and rocked a bit. Tonight, frontman James Dean Branfield wore army camouflage fatigues, which is always a fashion crime unless you happen to be going into battle. Initially, the vibe inside the club was cold and uninvited, and consequently, the Mannix started with a lackluster whimper. It took them half their set to warm up, prompted by the increasingly adoring fans, particularly one boy down the front who knew all the words to every song. Newish tracks like Kevin Carter, Everything Must Go, and A Design for Life were pure magic. The Mannix now deliver a smooth, well-crafted performance, although technical problems forced Wire to give up on his bass entirely during one song. At the end, none of the fans who'd been waiting years to see the Mannix again were disappointed, and one industry insider was heard screaming, they were so amazing, for several hours afterwards. There is a place for the Mannix in the US, but whether they have the patience to crack America is another question. So we'll probably have to wait four more years for another intimate gig. It'll be worth it. Natural Born Swillers Professional Northerners, rock superstars and all-round party animals. Def Leppard's Joe Elliott and Terrorvision's Tony Wright are having a blast on the road together. Paul Brannigan travels to Frankfurt to hear shocking tales of high-class cool girls, 15 stone groupies and mammoth boozing sessions. It's uh, not ooh, uh, uh, not ooh, ooh. We're in Frankfurt with two of Rock's finest vocalists, and Joe Elliott and Tony Wright have decided that before we go any further, we should clarify once and for all the Northern English pronunciation of the word fuck. So now you know, because these things are important, obviously. Death Leopard and Terrorvision, Sheffield's Brit Rock Godfathers and their lovable Bradford heirs apparent, are presently touring together for the first time and having a splendid time by all accounts. In the last two days that we spend on the road with Yorkshire's hardest rocking sons, we will witness tomfoolery, showbiz camaraderie and frankly, much asking about. We will see leopard guitarist Phil Collin teaching Tony Wright kickboxing and hear Joe Elliott inquire on stage if a blowjob is out of the question. We'll have dinner with high-class cool girls, witness the consumption of top-grade cocaine, not by any of us lot, and see a teenage boy involuntarily lose control of his sphincter, having his ass wiped by his sister. But that's another story. Right now, we're in the comfortable back lounge of Def Leppard's tour bus with Joe and Tony, men inextricably linked by geography, profession and hideous taste in trousers. We're here to discuss years of crazy, crazy, crazy nights of rock and roll. Joe and Tone are already in full blather mode, chatting about the bands who first made them want to get rocked. For me, it was the classic glam acts like Slade, Bowie and Mott the Hoople, Joe admits. I got called a puff at school because I like Mark Bolan and his women's shoes. But from the moment I heard T-Rex's Electric Warrior, I wanted to be in a band. I inherited my sister's record collection when she went to college, Tony reveals. Led Zeppelin, free, bands like that. It were good. It were loud and it was something to pose to in front of the mirror. That were me hooked. Neither Mr. Elliot nor Mr. Wright originally wanted to grab hold of a mic stand and holler like a mad fool. Tony initially dreamt of being a guitarist while Joe's stage debut was made playing drums with a band called Jump. I only got the job because their drummer had gone great picking in France, he admits. And then, half an hour before my debut, the fucker turned up again. They felt sorry for me and let me play three songs, though. It was fun, but too much like hard work. One missed bus, a fortuitous run-in with original leopard guitarist Pete Willis and a quick-fire audition singing Stairway to Heaven later, 
Joe secured an easier life behind the mic. After a brief stint in the tragically named subject, Tony's introduction to television was even less painful. Sark told me to learn teenage kicks by the undertones. By the actual audition, I sat and shut his drum riser while Lee sang the song he recalls. I just watched, and when they finished, they said, what do you reckon? I said, oh, I great. And they said, right, you're in, without me singing a note. I think they were really desperate by this time. They must have been. At one early gig, I sang Ain't No Cure for the Summertime Blues for every line of 27 songs and then fell off stage. Fortunately, we knew our entire audience back then. We only did six club gigs, Joe Sniggers, and then we said, fuck this, we hate these places. We want to be like Zeppelin playing Wembley. We figured the easiest way to take that shortcut was to make a record. I borrowed 150 quid from my dad and we did the Get Your Rocks Off EP. Got some management and a few months later we were playing theatres with ACDC and Sammy Hagar. Brilliant. We told people that our first manager was a guy called Dave Scott. But it was actually just shutty, putting on a Cockney accent, Tony confesses. We thought that would make us seem more professional. The phone would ring at Shutty's house and he'd be like, Dave Scott here. Oh, all right, Dad. No, you must have heard me wrong. Right, let's have more shameful revelations. What's the most embarrassing thing either of you have done on stage? I can think of the most embarrassing thing that happened to him. Laughs Joe, pointing at Tony. Pogoing on his mic stand and falling over the other night. Shit, did you see that, Tony blushes? I got my laces caught on one of the hooks that stick out. Anyway, what about the time that your pants fell down in Hungary? You keep quiet about that, Joe, don't you? It transpires that Joe's silence on this matter is due to the fact that Tony is talking bollocks. But a leopard man has experienced problems in the trouser region in the past. We played in Wolverhampton once and I were warming up with David Lee Roth style splits with my plastic trousers ripped right up the back, the Sheffield smoothie recalls. I couldn't turn around all night in case the audience saw the silver gaffer tape running up my arse crack. I remember trying to skid on my knees in rubber pants at either Redden or Phoenix, Tony adds. But the rubber pants stopped dead and I skidded on and I end up with them round my ankles. But you just pull your pants up and pretend it's all part of the entertainment industry, don't you? This sense of fun is another thing Leopard and Terrorvision have in common. Tour schedules are headed by Spinal Tap's classic statement, None More Black. Don't mention the war jokes will be cracked and moustaches grown in honour of terrible Teutonic facial hair. You've both been very successful, yet you don't take this rock and roll art too seriously, do you? People get mixed up between enjoying yourself and not taking things seriously, Tony states. We're in a business that is the best in the world and when I see these mangy fuckers walk on stage looking all fucking serious, it's just fucking laughable. I know what it's like to stand behind the machine in a factory, so when I laugh, it's because I'm happy not to be stuck there anymore. There's nothing to sulk about in this business. It's the best job in the world. It's like comedians, nods Joe. They take their job seriously, but their job is fucking around. People don't get our humour a lot of the time. They'll hear let's get rocked or make love like a man and think we're fucking serious. Think we're man of war doing some macho shit. We're totally taking the piss, but it goes right over their heads. We're just having a laugh like Slade or someone would have. But people don't see that lineage. They see Slade, fun band, Def Leppard, sad metal band. Exactly, Joe shrugs. We had a really good article in some English broadsheet newspaper and still they used the headline, this is Spinal Tap, bastards. Anything pissing you off, Mr. Unfeasibly Chirpy Bradford bloke? The music scene in Britain, now Tony mutters. It's just a big dance like your dad contest. There's no rebellion or laughing at yourself anymore, just people copying 60s rock stars. But rock music is more relevant to the 90s and where we're from than all this shit right on music that everyone takes so seriously. For the record, Joe's last musical purchase was Pearl Jam's No Code, a bit inconsistent, while Tony's was regular urban survivors to help it up the charts. Now, 
Let's ignore rock and roll for a moment and move on to its bosom buddies, sex and drugs. Terrorvision's fondness for having a good time was documented in Kerrang 593 in an on-the-road feature Tony describes as a little close to the bone. This time, they're perfectly well-behaved and sensible. Uh-huh. Def Leppard hear their stories and smile knowingly. Their own excesses have been peaked on the band's all-conquering pyromania tour in America. Allegedly, Joe? We lost the plot on that tour, yeah, he smiles. But for all the sex and drugs, it's the rock and roll that sticks in the memory. I just remember the crowds. The sound you hear is our bullshit bell clanging furiously. Mr. Elliot, we put it to you that as a virile and sexually available young man away from home, you were beating off frisky young lasses with a shitty stick. Well, okay, there'd be times that you'd get back to your room and some burn who'd slip the night port or a hundred bucks would be in your bed saying, I'm not leaving till you fuck me. Yeah, go on, go on. We'd be like, you'll be waiting a long time, darling, because she'd be some 15 stone lass with jam jar glasses and acne. Clang, clang, clang. A mischievous smile plays across Joe's face. Anyway, like I said, it's the rock and roll memories that endure, he smiles. Tease. Did you ever lose the plot during these years of excess? Not from drugs, Joe insists. And we didn't develop egos, but we did develop attitudes for a while. Shouting, fuck off. I don't want to know who you are. And some kid would be just looking for an autograph. We've learned to deal with all that now, though. Spoken like a seasoned pro. Tony. Do you ever worry that the vision may be burning the candle at both ends a little too often? None of us are imbeciles, Tony sighs. We have been in the past, Joe interjects. But you know yourself when you're overindulging too much, Tony continues. And none of us are into stuff that can make you lose it. We've occasionally had to pull one another up, admits Joe. With Steve, we had to all the time. And with Pete Willis, fucking hell, we told him a hundred times, quit or you're out. And he just wouldn't listen until we actually kicked him out. Cheeky sniggers are exchanged. These two do like a chuckle, it has to be said. So what's the most fun you've had on this tour then? Shutty's way to act is always entertaining, Tony giggles. Eh? Shutty occasionally appears on stage with us wearing a waiter's uniform and serving drinks on a tray, Joe reveals. He's not a sensible lad. And we got annihilated one night in Stockholm. I picked up the bar bill and it was 400 quid. We had a great laugh. Lee was chucking CDs and bottles out onto the street. Yeah, but only because the standard lamp was plugged in, says Tony, leaping to his bass player's defence. Kind of. Joe, you've scaled the heady heights of the rock world. Have you any advice for this young scamp? Pad your shoes the next time you jump over a wall, Joe laughs, referring to Tony's recent tequila-fueled double ankle-breaking exploits. And don't get insurance, agrees Tony. It's a waste of money, and they're a bunch of bastards. They told me you didn't take enough care, and I was like, I wouldn't need to take uh, out fucking insurance if I took care, you bastards. Anyway, Joe continues. My advice would be don't listen to advice because you're going to do whatever the fuck you've just got to follow your nose and that's what Terrorvision are doing. Okay, it's almost time to rock rock till we drop and these two do it better than most in fact. Of all the uh, greatest British bands from the Beatles through Black Sabbath and Joy Division to the Stone Roses and Oasis, they're from up north. So aren't you sick of all these southern shandy drinking big girls blouses taking the piss? All this a up lad. Has thou got a whip it and flat cap humour gets a bit tiresome, Joe says. It doesn't really bother us. We know we've got the best football teams too. We get it too, sighs Tony. But it was quite bad because when we started we had a couple of pigeons and I used to have a lurcher. So it's your fault, you bastards, Joe chuckles. Tony holds up his hands by way of a not very sincere apology. Bloody northerners. It's obvious that Leopard and Terrorvision get on really well. Whenever possible, they check out one another's shows, have a drink together and rip the piss out of each other. And the shows in Germany are truly great. Both bands fired up and Larry are knocking out hit single after hit single like, well, machines that knock out loads of hit singles. 
Joe Slyly interjects a bit of Kenneth Wollstone-Holmes' 1966 World Cup final commentary into Let's Get Rocked, while Tony informs a bemused audience that Celebrity Hit List is Terrorvision's most recent German number one single, Top Fun. So what can we expect when the UK tour kicks off in Sheffield on November 14th? You'll be guaranteed a good night out, Joe insists. If I was 16, my dick would be hard at the thought of it. I mean, Terrorvision beat us in best British band polls now. So we've got to be right on the ball to follow them. Plus, Tony and I are great frontmen. It's very uncool now to play master of ceremonies on stage. Fuck cool. Tony agrees vigorously. If you want music that's related to you, not your dad, you'll have a great time, he says. Then he cracks a huge smile and slips into professional northern emote. It'll be fucking brilliant, he yells. That's fucking with an ooh. Beaver, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Live, and the first concert reviewed this week is Social Distortion, supported by No Fun At All. Reviewed by Claire Downs, this one gets 5 out of 5. Outside, it's freezing. Inside, about 70 degrees. Swedish hardcore brats No Fun At All are making little impression with their cheery brand of surf punk. It's only moments after they quit the stage that Social Distortion amble on without ceremony, looking too casual for a band who are the most important American punk band ever. His eyes blacked up like a panda. Mike Ness looks like the scariest man in London. Social Distortion are the West Coast punk rock band. The reason why Offspring, Green Day, Rancid and every single one of your favourite Californian outfits exist. Their current album, White Light, White Heat, White Trash is their strongest and most defiant record to date. A big two-fingered salute to everyone who wrote Mike Ness off as a drunken junkie loser in the past. His quartet peel off the stones is under my thumb, looking undisturbed by the heaving mass of bodies. The walls start to sweat. Suddenly, ancient uh, social distortion classic, Another State of Mind, roars in like an earthquake. The heat rises to 80 and the sound seems to be filtering through a damp sponge. Mike Ness looks like the scariest man in England and Yank Punk makes sense with a startling clarity. He's straight now, super cool, and his new single, I Was Wrong, literally runs you over like an express train. He's got his fingers wrapped around your throat. The temperature's up to 90. To my left, two blokes appear to be wearing school uniform. Bang in. Mike Ness is snarling like a pit bull as he headbutts into a fiery cold feeling. He looks like the most dangerous man in Europe. Behind him, ex-Danzig drummer Chuck Biscuits appears to be clubbing someone to death as a snarling dear lover hits the ceiling. The whole band go topless, the garage is melting, and every tattoo on Mike Ness's compact frame seems to have come alive. It's 100 degrees and the encore is Johnny Cash's standard ring of fire. Mike Ness plays it like a legend and looks like the most dangerous man on the planet. This anger, this energy, this attitude, this is surely what punk rock should always have been about. No hype, no fuss, no pretty packaging or expensive gadgetry. Just three chords ripping out, two fingers up and one man like Mike Ness leading the pack. Next up we have a a short review of the Stereophonics at the Camden Monarch London on Monday, November 24th. Reviewed by Jason Arnott, this one gets 4 out of 5. This has got to stop. We're virtually overdosed on lyrically incisive bands combining melodic sensibilities with towering rock chords. 1996, the year of power pop for sure. Still, there's always room for one more. Welsh trio Stereophonics utilise careful dynamics and insistent refrains, not hyperactive guitars or bully boy tactics. They occupy the Mannix's contingent on Planet Rock, their singer-guitarist even mirroring James Dean Bradfield's idiosyncratic croon at times. A jam-packed monarch hears caustic tales of frustration from a small town and has its face slap raw. Titles like More Life in a Tramp's Vest, Last of the Big Drinkers and She Takes Her Clothes Off, 
give an indication of where the trio are coming from. The amusing frontman describes the latter as about women who get pissed and sit in pubs throwing peanuts at each other. In two years, Stereophonics will be writing about the world. Who knows, they may even own shares. Next up this week, we have Screaming Trees, supported by Seaweed, at the Riverside Newcastle on Thursday, October 31st. Reviewed by Liam Shells, this one gets 4 out of 5. Fugazi meets the Osmonds, a pines one barbound pundit as Seaweed muscle their way through free drug zone. And while that pronouncement might be a little over-generous toward the implausibly toothy Mormon clan of pop legend, the observation that Seaweed's game is sweetening trad hardcore dynamics with top melodies and decent audible vocals is a well-made one. The scramble for Seaweed t-shirts as All That Matters Fades Away says it all. Mark Lanigan is something of a legend. He appears scruffy, wasted and withdrawn, moving with the energy of a man who has just mainlined the Mestos. His eyes remain clamped shut for the duration and he speaks just once, a perfunctory thank you, leaving his bass playing sidekick Van Connor to do all the talking. So you'd think Screaming Trees would be struggling, but they're not. They're just walking it tonight. Lanigan's amazingly languid vocals still sound like liquid sandpaper and those songs are, after all, heaven sent. After Lanigan's disturbing demeanour, the next thing you notice is Van's guitar playing brother Gary Lee firing up shadows by carving up giant arcs with his right arm like some overinflated Pete Townsend. Across the stage stands a stranger in a white t-shirt. This is Josh from the band Caius, explains Van. He's going to be helping us out a little. At first, as dying days and winter songs are doled out roughly but with charm and grace, it's not entirely obvious why Screaming Trees need help from Josh Homme to do this stuff. Then Halo of Ashes rolls up and his purpose becomes clear as he serves up the beef, while Connor pours over the delectable arabesque dorsey bits with the help of an ungainly device that is part guitar, part mandolin and uh, sounds something like an electric sitar. Gospel Plough and Julie Paradise round off the sub one hour show with Lanigan on, on autopilot and the encore routine brings out uh, just bed of roses before the unaffable frontman pisses off altogether leaving drummer Barrett Martin to vocalise a couple of Devo covers, Gut Feeling and Slap Your Mummy. They're fun, but we would have much rather have heard Dollar Bill or Butterfly, or any one of the six tunes from the exceptional Dust album that Go On played. Screaming Trees are responsible for some of the most beautiful and subtly powerful rock music ever written, and live sightings over here are rarer than flying chickens. This should have been the rock event of the year, but for Lanigan's diffidence, it would have been. And lastly this week, we have Symposium live from the Crypt Hastings on Saturday, November the 2nd. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets 4 out of 5. Over the last couple of weekends, Symposium have played in Cambridge, Bath and Ilford. And every time the pattern has been the same. The West London Quintet interrupt the indie disco, stare out cockily at a sea of unfamiliar faces, then totally blow everyone away with songs that snap, crackle and pop right through your head. Piece of piss. Symposium really are fantastic to watch. Bouncing to the ceiling, running into one another, punching the air with irrepressible delight, every song is a single in waiting. Busy with its rampant skanking rhythms and shout-alongs, always uh, answer to why I hate you, Larry and confident, all bubbling guitars and towering anthemic vocals, bury you and creeping stealthily through shimmering verses then exploding joyfully into a manic pop thrill chorus. Drink the Sunshine, Symposium's debut single, is more fun than snogging Drew Barrymore in a bouncy castle. Everyone's singing along gleefully by the time the chorus roars into view for a second time. Symposium are the best bits of your favourite bands wrapped up in one cute irresistible package. 
You'll hear Ash's exuberant melodies cuddling up to wicked, scuffed-up manic drift. The Foo Fighters' effervescent post-grunge romps uh, sharing a Lucas A with Rancid's furious scar slammers. Two minutes into the set, bodies are ricocheting wildly around the dance floor, caught up in symposiums, infectious, frenetic grooves. The numbers just grow and grow as each song whizzes by, and as the set closes with a turbocharged cover of the Beatles' Hard Day's Night, vocalist Ross disappears into the melee at the front of the stage before launching himself headlong into drummer Joe's kit, every last drop of energy drained away. Perfect. Afterwards, punters grab set lists, flyers and posters and thrust them eagerly towards glowing symposium faces for autographs. It's been the same every night, and like the Spice Girls, everyone will soon have their own personal favourite to drool over, because that's uh, what happens to pop stars. And make no mistake, Symposium will be very, very big pop stars soon. Go see them when they play with Free Colours Red in December and realise that all other guitar bands in this country are now officially redundant. Kill em all! The Ozfest has declared war on Donington, Lollapalooza and every other rock festival on earth and it's got Ozzy Osbourne's Sepultura and Fear Factory on its side. America has already been destroyed and as Stefan Trazzi discovers, the UK will be next. There's a genuine sense of excitement swirling around San Bernardino's blockbuster pavilion. 35,000 people are here to see some of metal's biggest and best bands at the height of their powers. This is the hottest thing to hit America for years. It's called the Ozfest and it's coming your way. But before we uh, get to that, let's take a quick look around. From the side of the giant main stage, gazing out across the site, a sea of people stretches into the distance. Bikers, Grebos, headbangers, and no doubt the odd psycho whose pint you wouldn't spill. In the catering tent, Sepultura's Igor Cavalera, Biohazard's Billy Graziadi, and Steve Von Till of Neurosis are having a quiet chat over a plateful of cookies. Fear Factory's Dino Cazares is holding court with a bevy of busty Californian babes and legendary American porn star Ron Jeremy. Word is that Fear Factory will film their own porn video later in the day, but this turns out to be nonsense. Ozzy Osbourne's entourage wander in and out throughout the afternoon. In fact, only Glenn Danzig and his posse and Slayer remain virtually invisible. The day itself passes at an incredible pace, but that's the Ozfest, a breakneck roller coaster ride. It's also a huge success. A sellout crowd, massive t-shirt sales and a series of killer sets. Ozzy Osbourne in particular obliterates the memories of his faltering Donington 96 show with a blinding two hour performance. And the Roses, playing as early in the day as they were, took their 35 minutes by the neck and shook the bastard so violently that no one could deny theirs was the most outstanding set of the day. Even Danzig who's skillfully taken on board an industrial metal assault on his latest album delivered in thoroughly powerful style. But the greatest winner of the day wasn't any individual or band. It was loud, brutal, uncompromising music. I hate how judgmental people are about this genre of music. They think you're a beavis or butthead if you want to go out there and let go of any sort of aggression. Whereas if you're into, I don't want to just say Pearl Jam, but that sort of band, then you're thought of as a thinker. I've had enough of it. It's bollocks. And bollocks to everyone... Uh, who thinks that sort of Lollapalooza wank. You know, uh, we're so cool we can't ship. They're just phony. Wankers who don't know how to have a good time. This isn't Tom Araya, Evan Seinfeld, Max Cavalera or even Ozzy Osbourne talking. This is Sharon Osbourne, Ozzy's wife and manager and the powerhouse who not only conceived the Ozfest but has rallied an entire industry together to make sure that it will become an international event. I thought the Lollapalooza situation that went on this year was a complete joke, Sharon continues. It became a situation where everything is just for profit and money making. 
The initial philosophy of a decent price ticket with a bumper bill was a great idea, but people want more and more and more, so they go for the big bucks and things get twisted. I thought the Lollapalooza bill sucked this year. The whole thinking behind it was wrong. I was hearing that initially there were rumours of special guests like Tony Bennett and Tom Jones appearing. Ridiculous people they were coming up with just to try and outcall themselves. I'm not slagging anybody, but everybody forgot where they came from and what they represent. On Aussie's recent retirement sucks US tour, the Osbournes have discovered that their most popular support act was Sepultura. Anything more alternative was usually given a resounding thumbs down from American fans. Filter were a great band, made a great album and they were great guys, but the combination with Ozzy didn't work, says Sharon. The feedback we were getting on the internet from fans was they didn't want the music mixed. It offended them. Another band we loved, Life of Agony, didn't work either. We kept on asking, who do you want to see with Ozzy? Because we want to give you what you want. It's no good us putting together a bill we really like, but 20,000 kids go home thinking it sucked. It came back that the fans wanted heavier and heavier bills, so we said fine, that's what we'll give you. Initially, the US music industry's response to the notion of an all-day heavy metal festival in 1996 was to snort derisively. Everyone thought it would be the same situation in the US as rap concerts, explained Sharon, where there's chaos and fights breaking out everywhere. They didn't think we could make it work, so we had to prove that we could, because we know the audience better than anyone else. We know how to cater for them and how to handle them. In an age where people in this business will frankly try to get away with giving people as little as possible, what made Sharon Osbourne go the other way and try to present as many bands as possible? Just to give the kids value for money, she shrugs, and not to be posy or super cool and try to be on the crest of anybody else's wave. We wanted it to be a, de a day of great music and for everybody there to have a great time. The two 96 Ozfest US shows were so popular that 20 further dates have been booked in North America next summer. There'll also be open air shows in Europe and Japan, more importantly, the Ozfest is set to come to the UK in 1997. I don't want to do Donington, insists Sharon. I want to take the Ozfest to Finsbury Park in London. Of course, this means that the Ozfest will be competing against Donington in 1997. Unfortunately, it will, sighs Sharon. Donington's been very good to Ozzy, but I feel it's time to move on. I want to give the kids the sort of music they want to hear, but in a different facility with a different approach. I want to bring the new breed of metal bands together and still maintain the history by having Ozzy there. The idea is to give a whole generation of heavy music a showcase. All the bands have been fantastic. They agreed from day one that this is what our sort of music needs and they were prepared to do what had to be done. The only element of Ozfest 96 which didn't come together as planned in San Bernardino were the extra attractions. Tattooists and piercing booths should have lined the site's boundaries, but which didn't materialize due to early teething problems. Next year, it will be a different story and the Ozfest will be as colorful as it's supposed to be. Sharon is also keen to stress that the Ozfest could do more in the UK than just call it London. And with a show in the north of England on the cards, if the interest is there, Donington, Reading, Phoenix and Glastonbury, you have been warned. Feedback and we start this week with Letter of the Week. If Darren from London's letter about calling Marilyn Manson was a real letter from a real person whose sentiment is sincere, it doesn't deserve an intelligent response. But I can't let it go unanswered. Not that my letter will be the only one. So Marilyn Manson and Korn are satanic, eh? Excuse me, but where exactly is the satanism in Korn? Admittedly, a knee-jerk reaction to the title of Marilyn Manson's new album Antichrist Superstar might make the brain dead jump to a few conclusions 
and bring the Bible bashing hordes out of their wonderland where it's alright to kill a few abortion doctors but not to play the guitar. But if you listen, yes, listen, you might just learn something. As the Reverend Marilyn put it in the pages of Kerrang, the Antichrist isn't so much a person as it's everyone's increasing collective disbelief in God. This, believe it or not, is not the same as saying I'm the devil, so go out and rape a virgin smothered in goat's blood. Compared to the lies, cover-ups and bigotry of most politicians, Marilyn Manson is honest. He and Korn are not dangerous. Darren, you are. Because you are a part of the moral majority who act as judge, jury and executioner despite having your eyes and ears closed. Do us all a favour. Until you find a crowbar and open up your mind, don't buy Kerrang. Young people shouldn't be exposed to your medieval ideas. Greg Nottingham. Grunge is dead. Pah, I think not. I was lucky enough to see Pearl Jam at Wembley Arena on October 29th and I still haven't come down from the clouds. They played everything from Alive to State of Love and Trust and Smile, which was amazing. Thanks Pearl Jam, you rock. Please tour again soon. Jen, Rugby. I've just seen Pearl Jam's two Wembley shows, the two most amazing nights I will ever experience. On the second night I was in the front row for half of the show. It was the most incredible hour of my life. And to top it all off, Stone acknowledged me with a smile as I pointed at him. Cheers. Simon McCready, no code. I'm writing in response to Dave the Morbid Grungemeister's letter in issue 621. I've never read such a pile of shit in all my life. I've been a Metallica fan for 12 years and I've seen them live many times. Why should I and many other fans miss out on hearing songs from the early albums of Metallica gigs just because a bunch of spotty teenagers don't know them? One of the highlights of the recent shows was the Kinemal Ride the Lightning medley. Although I would have preferred to hear some of those songs in full, if any narrow-minded dick stood there a moment because they don't know the early songs, they should go out and fucking buy them. Paul Ryan, Warrington. Darren from London says Corner dangerous, satanic and hateful. Bullshit. Corn channel true and pure emotions into their music. People can relate to Jonathan Davis's childhood anxiety. As for Corn being satanic, what? You dork. And as for Corn being hateful, you try going through a childhood being bullied, abused and cast out by your own family without getting just that tiny bit angry. Please fuck right off back to your Bon Jovi or whatever it is you listen to. Thanks Kerrang for all the corn coverage since 1995. It's been amazing. Keep it up. Leander Seaford. I wonder if Darren from London has ever listened to corn. Saying they're dangerous is completely stupid. Jonathan Davis's lyrics are challenging and therapeutic. They are also about real life, which makes them about as dangerous as the news. Like Jonathan, I was bullied at school and the corn song faggot helped me deal with it. Carl Croydon. Thanks to Kareng for the Twister Tour. I went on the last night to London Dingwalls and it was fucking excellent. Lodestar are really cool. Crazy gods of endless noise love my nails so I love them. And Feeder, not only are they the nicest bunch of people, but they are the best British band at the moment. Please do another tour like this because this one was really cool. I can't wait for Feeder to tour again. Bev Anderson, Tunbridge Wells. Ill communication. Do you come here often? Whitfield Crane is fuming. There the ugly kid Joe Singer is, trying to get rid of his band's party bozo image and here we are trying to force him to get pissed and chat up strippers at top London shag spot string fellows. Luckily, one free pint and a pair of bare breasts is enough to keep guitarist Dave Fortman happy. Boy dressed as a bunny girl, Jason Arnott. 
I know you Karang guys wanna watch us go to a club, get wasted and pick up some chick shouts ugly kid Joe Singer Whitfield Crane over the rowdy chatter of the other diners in the West London restaurant we're sitting in. But I'm so excited about the musical side of this band, man. Whitfield has us sussed. We do indeed want to watch the mischievous singer and his sparkle-like guitarist Dave Fortman stagger blindly into top London nightspot string fellows, loudly insult a few celebrities as only Californians can, fit some beer over exposed wobbling breasts and stagger back out with a special new friend on each arm. Frankly, we want to see them make right cunt to themselves. Sure, the new Ugly Kid Joe album Motel California is a distinct improvement on its predecessor Menace to Sobriety. But in the grand scheme of things tonight, it's not the big picture. The big picture is unrestrained buffoonery, only to be expected. Let's go to work on these beers, shall we? A spanner is immediately thrown among the pigeons when Whitfield Crane asks his waitress for a non-alcoholic beer. Sir, what sorcery is this? I'm not kidding. I've been sober for five months now, he shrugs, settling for a coke. It's partly something I do out of boredom, but I'm also a bad drunk. If I was drinking, you wouldn't want to be sitting next to me. My eyes would be blank and I'd probably be peeing everywhere. Can't you just reduce your intake? There's a fine line between celebration and escapism, he notes. I've drifted so far into escapism that I had to decide to stop for a year. I also sobered up because I wanted this album to be totally kick-ass. Previous reports might lead you to believe Mr. Crane to be a miserable bastard. But here, fresh from a series of radio interviews, he's lively, enthusiastic and talkative. He's not averse to some cheekiness either, which he proves by commanding the giggling waitress to stop undressing me with your eyes. Crane and guitarist Fortman are still unashamed acolytes of true metal. Conversation veers from Motorhead main man Lemmy's Hollywood birthday party, at which Whitfield got up to sing Born to Raise Hell, to Judas Priest, to the evils of alternative rock. There's new wave and all that shit, says Fortman, sipping a margarita. I want to see retro metal make an appearance, and it will happen. Ugly Kid Joe are no longer with major label Mercury, a move which Crane likened to escaping Satan. He paints Motel California as the first album for which the band have enjoyed total freedom. But that's enough about the record, particularly as Crane has started throwing such spiritual terms as righteousness into the conversation. Besides, there's mischief afoot. Legendary rock PR Roland Hyams has announced that he's about to get the madness started by rolling a little one under the table. We have no idea what he means, but Fortman's head has just lit up like a lantern. Does Mr. Crane, uh, like a smoke? I said I was sober, not clean, he grins. Time for Stringfellows then. The ugly kid Joe Cab heads off across London first, followed by the Kerrang Hyams vehicle. As Stringfellows comes into view, we see Crane and Fortman on the pavement walking in the opposite direction, with two young ladies, one brunette, one blonde. There's no other way to phrase this, fuck my old boots, they've scored in the record-breaking space of three minutes. This feature, however, rather seems knackered. Crane yells something to his concerned PR about going to some bar and being back in 15 minutes. For all we know, this is the last we will see of them all night. We ease our way into the tight, horribly stylish Stringfellows crowd and attempt to reach the bar. The place is packed with disagreeably superior beautiful people. Semi-naked women are dancing on a platform and sliding lasciviously up and down on silver poles. Half an hour passes and just as we're about to start building glass castles with our empty drinking receptacles, the uglies return and all is revealed. On entering, they were grabbed by the club's PR girls and taken to a nearby weird bar as a courtesy thing, not to mention an inconvenient thing. 
Fortman looks perfectly happy drinking and gawping at the girls. Crane, on the other hand, clearly hates everything about this place. It's not my scene, man, he confirms as we secure a table right by the dancers. It's funny, sure, but it's not my thing at all. Come on, you goddamn devil. Don't you fancy establishing contact with a young lady tonight? Not really, he says. I'm single, but I've been down that path before and I can tell you it leads to nowhere. I lost a relationship because it's so hard to be faithful when you're in a band. Eventually, the singer relaxes a little. That's uh, night one's nice, I'll admit, he says, pointing up at a dancer. I like dark-haired girls. She's cute. Shit, yells Fortman from across the table. I've got a piece of pie hanging right in my face. Before Crane can reply, he and Fortman are whipped over to the club's celebrity owner, Peter Stringfellow, for a top photo opportunity. Professional that he is, Stringfellow slaps a hand on each musician's shoulder and grins for England. Fortman looks psyched. Crane looks like he'd rather be playing leapfrog with a unicorn and walks off straight after the pictures are taken. In a bizarre turn of events, Kerrang and Fortman are invited to sit at Mr. Stringfellow's table. Proving to be a generous down-to-earth character as opposed to a wanker, Stringfellow piles us with maximum measure booze. He slaps his hand on your arm as you talk to him and presents his right ear for special attention. To be honest, I hadn't heard of Ugly Kid Joey, says, but my PR girls definitely have. They really know who's who. I thought the guy uh, to my left seemed uneasy about having his picture taken, though he looked frightened. I asked him if I'd ruined his career. The only rock stars that Stringfellow wouldn't particularly like to entertain at his club are Blur and Oasis's Liam Gallagher, who, he says, try too hard to prove themselves. He describes Motorhead's Lemmy as his favourite guest. He doesn't give two fucks, Stringfellow chuckles. He comes in, sits down, has a good drink and always leaves with a woman, even though he's an ugly fucker. Rockstars can do what they want. That's what they're supposed to do. Ugly Kid Joe could get up there and dance with the girls if they liked. Unfortunately, Crane has gone back to his hotel. Fortman, on the other hand, is chatting eagerly with a blonde and sharing his table with the world champion kickboxer Ali Jacko and a member of multi-sexual dance troupe Femme to Femme. Drinks continue to flow free and fast. Stringfellows, fingers clicking at waiters like some kind of Geiger counter. I don't know how the hell we managed to get on this table the guitarist beams but it's totally amazing. With that, Dave Fortman makes the devil sign with his fingers, has a good headbang for no apparent reason and bursts out laughing, like you do. This week's singles are reviewed by Malcolm Dome. First single reviewed this week is 33 by Smashing Pumpkins and this gets 4Ks. Melancholy, moody and utterly compelling, this is the pumpkins at their best. Billy Corgan's whiny voice hits croon cruise as the hauntingly orchestral vibe swells around. Be warned, not one to play if you feel like punching a hole in the bathroom wall. DBH with their single White God Scent, this gets 4Ks. There are some dreadful bands out there trying to mix hardcore and rap, but this is not one of them. Self-confessed scallies from Liverpool, DBH might not have New York sus, but they do have Mersey cheek and confidence, and they splashed all over this single. Catch them on their current tour with the Dawn. Twisted Everyday Hurts by Skunk and Nancy. Here's a strange one. Shockingly, sounds a little like Extreme, a catchy number that's a little too predictable to really capture the imagination. Skin sounds utterly bored throughout. And is that an Iron Maiden style galloping bassline in there? Cooler Shaker with their single Govinda. This gets 2Ks. 
Remember all those nights when you get absolutely off your face, fancy a curry and stagger into the nearest Indian restaurant, order the hottest vindaloo off the menu and then fall face down into your meal? Well, this track uh, from then will bring back happy or embarrassing memories because it's the sort of thing that will be warbling in the background. Lust for Life, Iggy Pop. This gets 4Ks. Come on, you must know this. The one with that unmistakably strutting rhythm and the Igster sneering at the lyrics is about to cut your throat. Simply a classic, every home should have one. Breathe a Sigh by Def Leppard. This gets 2Ks. Core, it's a Def Leppard ballad. Wow, what a radical departure for the boys. Look, if you're a Leopard fan, then you'll love this, whatever this review says. If you're not, here's some free advice. Just avoid this load of Radio 2 bilge. The single of the week this week comes from Girls Against Boys with their single Disco 666 and this gets 5Ks. The bees knees, the dogs bollocks or in plain English the best damn single you can buy this week or most weeks for that matter. The melody is subversively catchy, the beat is scuzzier than the cockroach convention in your mattress, a single with real bite, compulsive listening, a glorious sharpened dagger up the arse of flaccid corporate rock. Working class heroes. Tough, intense, aggressive and powerful. Cecil are the sound of a band who were born on Liverpool's mean streets. Which doesn't mean they wear shell suits, tell you to calm down all the time or sneak out to steal Liz Evans's hubcaps when she parks outside their local boozer. To most people, certainly to anyone who doesn't actually live there, modern Liverpool means hardship, petty crime, joyriders and unemployment rather than burgeoning popular culture. It's seen as one of Britain's most troubled areas, plagued by the worst effects of the economic slump. No jobs, no money and no hope. But sit in a pub with fast-rising Britrock Quintet, Cecil for an afternoon and you'll soon realise that Liverpool really isn't that different from any other place where work is scarce and life is tough. And despite being treated like northern scum in places like Stourbridge, Cecil don't have chips on their shoulders. People are hard up here, says vocalist Steve Williams, cosily ensconced in the Halton Castle pub in Liverpool's West Derby area with the rest of his band. If you come in a pub like this at night, it'll be full of 40 and 50 year olds who've been through shite, but this place has got a good feeling to it. The rants in Toxteth kicked things off 10 years ago, explains drummer Ali Lambert. It quietened down for a bit, but now it's started up again big time. It's all drug related. The thing I noticed, says bassist Jay Bennett, is that when you go away and then come back here, the people are really friendly. The average man in the street, in a lot of places, especially little towns, will be dead rude to you. We've had really bad looks in pubs when we've been on the road. You get a lot of that old oh god scouser stuff, but that north-south thing is a fucking stupid. There's a lot of heritage here, continues Anne. I mean, Liverpool FC are from here, and Ken Dodd, Brookside, and Silla Black. I can't stand Silla Black, snorts Lee, before laughing into a frankly libelous tirade about the Bucktooth TV star. At the end of the day though, I'm proud that everyone knows about Liverpool. It's not just some tiny little place. On stage, Cecil are full of the kind of angst and aggression which tends to be associated with life in the city. They definitely don't sound like they've grown up on a palm tree filled beach. Mellow they're not, even when the song's quietened down. Steve, who writes all the lyrics, carries a notebook on him all the time and constantly jots down ideas, thoughts and feelings. When he was 15, Williams used to take acid a lot because he was too young to get served in the pub. He spent one night tripping his bollocks off in a field, thinking he was dying and the bats were flapping about his ears. At the time, one of his best mates was a 35-year-old nutter. He used to down gas every day, explained Steve. 
One day, he'd had a whole canister, so we robbed the school. Next thing you know, the police were after us, so we dived in this duck pond and tried to swim away. He was off his box, and I was a total innocent. But I remember coming home to my dad that day with his giant tin of beans and boxes of milkshakes from the school. Steve's dad, who's described as a cross between Chelsea FC manager Rude Hullet and Grizzly Adams, was nonplussed by his son's exploits. In the early 60s, he played drums in a band for five minutes. When he decided he needed his own drum kit, he robbed Ringo Starr's Ludwig set from the Beatles tour bus outside a gig one night. He used to practice in the mate's attic with the Beatles gear, laughed Steve. But that's enough tales because we don't want to come across like Oasis going around saying we robbed cars and shit. The Halton Castle is a friendly local with a whole brood of characters, including the old bloke who's pictured on the back of Cecil's brilliant new mini album Bomba Diddler. Another regular comes in every day at 11am and stays put for the full 12 hours that the pub's open. The Croft, the cul-de-sac where Ali and guitarist Ant Hughes have both lived for years, is just round the corner from the Halton Castle. Yeah, Ant's my neighbour and I've known Steve since nursery school, grins Ali. We spend a lot of time in the street. It's a quiet road, but you know, a lot goes on behind closed doors. The whole area's alright really, but if you walk down the road, it's full of scallies provoking each other. Jay lives in another piece of suburbia where the scallies don't roam. But guitarist Pad Harrison is in Mullet Road, where loads of people got shot in the drug wars during the late 80s. Someone's put a B over the M on the street sign, so it's Bullet Road now he laughs. It's all gangsters and drugs, but I don't want to move because Lark Lane is nearby and there's loads of really nice restaurants and wine bars there. Cecil don't want to be stereotyped as cartoon scousers with dodgy connections and rags to riches stories, partly because they don't believe in hype and they prefer to let their music speak for itself. You should get on with it and not sell your band by getting loads of drugs down you and causing trouble, states D. We're not like that anyway. I only need five pints and I'm wrecked. I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to be secure and have a family and live in a nice place. But I still want to be talking to this lot and doing what I want to do. Music. If all you're in it for is to be on children's telly and to sell your record to nine-year-old girls, then you're a fake, concludes Ant. Some people are in this to make a living and some people have to be in a band. They need to make music. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy you couldn't get off the turntable. Albums, and the first album reviewed this week is Greatest Kiss by Kiss. Reviewed by Razel, this one gets 4Ks. Get up, get down, lose your mind. Yes, people, those are three of the four simple directives to being a fully-fledged, card-carrying, war-paint-wearing member of the Kiss Army. The fourth, be ever willing to hand over the contents of your wallet, purse, piggy bank and the merest whiff of a new Kiss product hitting the streets. After the only output from the Max Factor Marauders since their classic lineup reunion being the You Want the Best live compilation, the realms of utter pointlessness are further stretched with the release of this studio compilation. Greatest Kiss, wow, bet some marketing whiz lost an entire few seconds of shut eye dreaming that one up. With material ripped from the eponymous 74 debut up to 79's Dynasty, the only pubic hair in the butter here is the sacrilegious inclusion of God Gave Rock and Roll to You, the cheese dripping hit from their last, and gasp, non-classic lineup album 92's Revenge. The only newie being, well, a rather orgasmic live rendition of Shout It Out Loud, complete with thunderous explosions all over the shop. Hot stuff, yet it hardly warrants a Kiss diehard forking out for this package. I mean, 79's Double Platinum, Crohn's The Old Bastard, was not only a better collection, it was also completely and noticeably remixed. None of your piddling remastered bollocks, as were the likes of this and that recent Van Halen effort. So yeah, we're talking one for the new kids. 
the uninitiated, a sampler for the grunge-suckled brat who wants to know what all the fuss was is about. And if we're looking at it from that perspective, then this album fucking rules. Detroit Rock City, the greatest riff ever recorded. Black Diamond, Juice, Cold Gym, all the classic shit. You'll hear Kiss kicking out when they return this month and make Bonfire Night look like the gasping spark of a knackered Bic lighter. And four, count them, frontmen. Paul the Starchild, who'll want to know if you really, really, really love him. Gene the Demon, who'll command you to kneel before his godliness. Ace the Spaceman, who'll need you to shock him with your black leather. And Peter the Pussycat, who'll be somewhere else while you're always there alone. But you've read such negative crap about the stack-heeled boot troop in the press. Hey kid, it's all part of the game. Like Kiss, you've got to roll with it. Rock with it too. All night in fact. Next up we have the album Goldfinger by Goldfinger. Reviewed by Jason Arnott, this one gets 4Ks. We shouldn't be too quick to judge Goldfinger just because they basically deal in rancid, patented ska punk. Before we point the finger, ho-hum, let's be fair, maybe rancid Tim and Lars were in Santa Monica years back before they'd even started their band strolling past Goldfinger's vibrating rehearsal room. Lars said, heavens, what an innovative new brand of punk ska interfacing. Yes, replied Tim, let's adopt it as our own and they walked off thoughtfully stroking their goatees. It's not impossible. But the point is that Goldfinger write good songs. They might not necessarily have anything here to top Rance's Time Bomb or Roots Radical for sheer simplistic genius, but Goldfinger is excellent. A consistent bag of smart punk anthems varied and to the point. Singer-guitarist John Feldman is thankfully no carbon copy of any major punk star and he hoists Goldfinger above a legion of imitators, as opposed to Rance's gritty backstreet feel. This band are far more happy-go-lucky and beachbound, rambling about girls a masturbation, girls, good time, girls and then mums. The highlights are numerous as the only questionable moment here is My Girlfriend Shower Sucks, a minute long piece which veers dangerously towards the shite humour found on mucky pup albums. Answers is hyper aggressive football terrorist ska punk while anxiety and anything are simply great tunes. Mabel is a tale of idyllic love destined to collapse, a perfect little pop song with sizeable testicles. The City with Two Faces is the exact opposite. In case anyone thought they had Goldfinger sus, it's a speedy anti-LA diatribe. You can't even surf unless you want to get hepatitis. Reminiscent of SOD or MOD, with a cheesily amusing lounge section in the middle. You're probably thinking we're just a trendy punk band jumping on the bandwagon, murmurs Feldman. Like how many times have you heard me say fuck? Seven to be exact, and we still have four more to go. Grand stuff. And seeing as they're getting 4Ks, Goldfinger surely won't mind us mentioning that John Feldman used to be in the Electric Love Hogs. Guffaw. Next up we have the album Fate Got a Driver by Chamberlain. Reviewed by Eddie Thomas, this one gets 4Ks. Let's face it, punk bands in the 90s are 10 a penny. You're sick of Epitaph, bored of Lookout Records' output and unimpressed by the pointless noise of hardcore. So where to now? You could do a lot worse than check out Chamberlain a band who seriously threatened to put emo core firmly on the map. They have a pedigree, albeit under their former name. Split Lip, a clutch of excellent tunes and a sound which is a rough amalgam of Texas is the Reason, a rootsier sense field and the vastly underrated Sam I Am. At the very least, Fate's Got a Driver will see Chamberlain elevated to the top of the emo core tree, but the potential is there for much more than that. And lastly this week, we have the album Oh Come All Ye Faithful by Various. 
Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets 2Ks. Bar Humbug. Ever since a scruffy Irish punk and a dapper Scottish new romantic tugged at the world's heartstrings with Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas, we've had a deluge of albums dedicated to alleviating world suffering and raising our socio-political awareness. Because pop stars care, you know? No, really. And because they care, they donate their services for free and make previously unreleased material available to us ever so grateful punters. And it's always brilliant stuff. Not poorly recorded third-rate shite that isn't even deemed suitable for inclusion on multi-formatted single B-sides. No way, Jose. And the record companies that release these collectible gems aren't part of huge multinational corporations that enslave and milk-dry third-world economies whilst pleading for our sympathy. And Santa Claus is real. He is. He is. This album is shite. In a stocking. Rock for Choice is a cool organisation and many smart bands are involved in this 13-track affair. But a polished turd is a turd nonetheless. Henry Rollins opens proceedings with a sombre reading of Twas the Night Before Christmas over a collage of sniper shots, wailing burglar alarms and whirring helicopter blades. Oh yeah, that old Santa end of millennium society breakdown motif. Cheers, Hank. Then we get Lane, bland, girly punk from Dancehall Crashers, some gruff grinding from Detroit Sponge, and vacuous, sickeningly jangly tedium from Boston indie songstress Juliana Hatfield. Why, Ambassador, you are really spoiling us. Glad tidings arrive with a sublime shudder to think and wool spurty and spirited Christmas, it's Christmas. Before Bush turned party poopers with Good King something or other, a dire coupling of Good King Wenceslas with rock classics Hey Joe, which probably seemed like a good idea for five drunken minutes, but in reality is about as worthwhile as an ashtray uh, on a reindeer. The horror of this is eased by the female Beastie Boys, Luscious Jackson being typically sassy and cool on Queen of Bliss, before porno for Pyrus bass bod Mike Watt blurts out some abysmal tripe and our wacky Seattle chums presidents of the USA serve up the good time boogie of Christmas Piglet. The fact that the most hilarious couplet on this is Christmas Piglet in the snow, holy piglet aren't you cold, indicates the presidents didn't exactly sweat blood and tears over it. To call it throwaway would be over generous. The Cranes' version of Happy Christmas War Is Over is the standout track here, a tribute to John Lennon's genius songwriting rather than Alison Shaw's wispy ethereal vocals. Punkers Face to Face also lend this sorry project some sense of dignity with a rather straight reading of the song Blue Christmas, but those pygmy chant samplers Deep Forest can fuck right off. Charity album or not, there isn't one song here you'll care about hearing a second time and you'd have to be showing an awful lot of goodwill to all men to shell out for this whimsical half-baked fare. Joy to the world, my ass. Charts and the number one single this week is Place Your Hands by Reef. Number one in the album chart is Two by the Presidents of the United States of America and number one in the indie LPs is Stoosh, Skunk and Nancy. The reader's top 10 this week comes from David Machini of Raysbury. Their chart begins 1. Anything by Madball. 2. A Lot to Learn Biohazard. 3. Shine Rollins Band. 4. Metamorphosis Shelter. 5. Don't Give Me Your Nothing Suicidal Tendencies. 6. Empower Downset. 7. Point of View Crivet. 8. No Cure Sick of It All. 9. Bull Tongue Corn. And 10. Saturday Night Fever by Lords of Brooklyn. Next week in Kerrang Back Issues. Techno Terrorist Alert. The Prodigy, half of you hate them, half of you love them, and we know why. Plus, their only interview. Fear Factory, meet Motorhead. Stone Temple Pilots are live and well. We're back, Wild Hearts exclusive UK dates. 
Cool, an eight-page poster pullout, plus Foo Fighters, Cradle of Filth, Screaming Trees, Def Leppard, Terrorvision, Sepultura, and Pantera. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday as usual, and I look forward to talking to you all then. Bye for now.